You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Today, in honor of Father's Day, we're going to celebrate patriarchy by talking about why women need to wear head coverings in worship. Uh, Actually, when I was assigned this particular passage, I I thought Pastor Dean was mad at me. Uh, When I looked at the sermon schedule and I saw, okay, okay, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians and it comes to chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 for me today. So I look at that, okay, that, that's good. Let's see what that's about. Oh, boy. And I, I looked at Dean. I said, Dean, you want me to talk about head coverings? Yeah. You want me to talk about head coverings on Father's Day? Yeah. Okay. All right. So here we go. So the question is, uh, why is this passage in the Bible? Is Christianity a male domineering or oppressive to women like it's often accused of being? You know, many people point to passages like this and say, see there, conservative Christians hate women. This is just further evidence of that. So today we're going to look at one of the most difficult and misunderstood and misappropriated passages in Scripture and try to make some sense of it, not only in its original context, but also for our context today. You know, there are some passages in Scripture where you can look at and, and try to make some sense out of and And you get immediate application out of it, and you can walk away from it and just go, okay, I'm pretty sure I understand what that's about. And uh, I've got a clear direction forward to what God's calling me to do. Then there are passages like our passage today, where you have to dig a little deeper and try to figure out what is going on. So I I hope that you're going to be able to hang with me uh, through this as we, we dig into this passage today. So just kind of looking at what we've gone through with 1 Corinthians recently, Paul has just spent chapters 8, 9, and 10 talking about Christian freedom and why it should not be abused. He talks specifically about how do the Corinthian believers deal with food sacrificed to idols and how they should look out not for only for their own interests, but the interests of others, especially for the sake of salvation and not causing others to stumble. Paul urges them in chapter 11, verse 1, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Zach Meredith, our group's director, unpacked this uh, last week and did a fantastic job on this. And so we come into verse 2 this morning, where Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He begins in this verse commending the Corinthians for not only remembering him, but also holding on to all the traditions that Paul has passed down. And you'll see when we get to verse 3 that something is wrong, though. He's kind of, Paul has a habit of kind of going, hey, you're doing really well at this, but then there's this. And that's what he's about to get to. But as we look at what he's trying to say here, he's about to begin a section that will cover chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 on proper public worship related to a few different things. Uh, What to wear, uh, the manner in which to take the Lord's Supper, how do we deal with spiritual gifts, how do we avoid disruptions in worship. So apparently Paul's heard that there are divisions in the worship at the church at Corinth. We'll see that next week when we get to verse 18. 
but there must also be some improper worship practices going on that he's needing to address, and we'll look at that today. This first issue, uh, again, related to public worship, relates to what one wears. What one wears should reflect, number one, proper authority, and number two, reverence through gender distinction and modesty. So the key verse in this entire passage we're going to look at today is actually verse 3. So I I beg of you, if I lose you somewhere along the way this morning, don't let me lose you in verse 3, because this verse is the key to the rest of it. In fact, verse 3, if you look at this and you understand what Paul's trying to say here, the rest of the passage merely illustrates and applies what he says in verse 3. And I think this is where a lot of people go wrong in looking at this passage, is not understanding it. This is the key that unlocks the whole the whole passage. So verse 3, let's see what it says. It says, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so when we see in this verse, we see something spelled out here where you have God, Christ, man, woman. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does Paul mean by the word head? That's the real question in verse 3. What does he mean by head. Well, there's three basic options, and there's a lot of debate out there over what this means. So I'm going to give you those three options. Option number one, what he could mean by head is preeminence or importance. In other words, the man in that cultural setting was preeminent over the woman, and they were more important in that society than the women were. That's, that's option number one. They held a more important position in society than women. But is this passage merely talking about social positions? If so, why does Paul later in this passage argue from the creation account if he's just talking about social positions? The relationship that is here between man and woman is also talked about in the same verse, the relationship between God and Christ. And so, God and Christ being mentioned in this same verse makes this position very difficult to hold. Does God hold a more important position than Christ, God the Father, more than God the Son? The second option is source or origin. The understanding here is that the head is the one through whom others exist. In this way, the man is the source of the woman in that Eve was created from the rib of Adam. God is the source of man in that God created man through Christ, the agent of creation. Those who hold to this particular view of source usually hold to what we refer to as an egalitarian position. Now, that's a a fancy word that basically means men and women not only have equality in value, they also have equality in roles. That means anything that a man does, a woman can do the exact same thing, whether that's in the workplace, in the church, at home. And so that's kind of the understanding of an egalitarian position. The problem with this interpretation of source in this passage is that we would have to say also that God is the source of Christ, making the Son somewhat less than the Father. This may even imply that Christ has his origin or existence in God, 
which is certainly not true. The three persons of the Trinity have always existed together. So the third option, we've looked at preeminence or importance, source. The third option for what Paul means by head here is authority. This view holds that there is some sense of spiritual authority in place by God's design. Those who hold to this position usually are also holding to a position that is referred to as complementarianism. And what that means is that men and women are equal in value, but they have different and distinct roles or functions. In other words, they complement one another. And so I think that this is what this passage is talking about is authority. Let me share why from Scripture that I think that is the case. You could say that source uh, is understood in a passage such as Colossians 2.19, where it says, the head, talking about Christ being the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. But I think authority seems better in multiple passages by Paul. For example, Ephesians 1.22, talking about Christ subjected everything under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church. God subjected everything to Christ, and so Christ is the head over everything uh, for the church. Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Again, authority. Colossians 2.10, Christ is head over every ruler and authority. So he's authority over authority. So you see several passages here where head clearly means authority. More importantly for our purposes this morning, when we're looking at man and woman and husband and wife included in this, is Ephesians 5.23, where it says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. We can see that God has authority over Christ, not because of value, but because of function. Yet, although Christ submits to the will of his Father, we see that the Father loves the Son and honors him in everything. The same can be said of what is intended to be the relationship between a husband and a wife in a marriage. Functionally, the man is the head of the home, And the passage in Ephesians 5 indicates that a woman should submit to a man, her husband, just as the church submits to Christ. At the same time, however, the husband should love and give himself for his wife just in the same way that Christ loves and has given himself for the church. So now that we have a little bit better understanding of what Paul means by head here, meaning authority, We have God, Christ, man, woman. Now, the rest of what we're going to talk about is how that's played out in this particular context. So verse 4 says, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Remember, and I'm going to remind you often this morning, that the real issues at stake here are set in the context of public worship. 
These issues are one, proper authority, and two, reverence through gender distinction and modesty. Every believer should conduct themselves in public worship in a manner that brings glory and honor to their respective head or authority. Corinthian clothing in public worship would make a statement. They, the problem is the Corinthian believers in the church there, they were bringing dishonor to their head, their authority. Men were dishonoring Christ, and women were dishonoring men. In an honor-shame culture such as Corinth was in the first century, dishonor is ultimate. You know, I'm super thankful for some resources such as the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary for laying this out so that I can understand better what was first century Corinth culture like. And because of that, we can talk a little bit better about the, the picture here. So verse 4, kind of looking at that, what that means is the covering for men that it talks about here and saying that he should not uh, have his head covering. This covering was either something that covered his literal head or was some kind of external clothing such as a tunic or a toga. So men were dishonoring, uh, dishonoring Christ in this way because it would give, having this kind of external clothing would basically give them some kind of appearance of importance or, or something like that by wearing these outer garments that were very fancy. Furthermore, many of the Roman cultic worship practices of that time period were done by priests of this cult wearing a head covering. And so they were often the socially elite in society, and so they, the men were dishonoring their head, Christ, by bringing glory to themselves and reflecting pagan worship cults. And so that's why it was a dishonor for them to put something on their head. At the same time, looking at verse 5, when we look at women, the uncovering for women was the opposite, in that they were showing off their hair a significant mark of physical beauty, drawing attention to themselves and sending a message in this culture when they would wear their, their hair uncovered and down. The message it sent in that culture was they were available. And so that's another piece that is important. And so by this, they were bringing shame on their head, which was their husband. And so in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says in another context, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. What was happening in this context in 1 Timothy is Paul is talking about some of the same things that he's talking about in our passage in 1 Corinthians. How do you gather together for public worship in the proper way? How do you properly show authority and you also do not distract from worship? And so we see that what was going on is women were wearing all kinds of clothing that was drawing attention to themselves rather than to God. And so in Greco-Roman culture, which was the predominant culture of Corinth, men wore short hair and women wore long hair. Because of that, 
80s metal bands and 90s grunge bands would never have made it in Corinth in the, in the first century. And so the point of verse 6 in our passage here, for if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. The point here is that if a woman is not covering her head, her hair should be cut off or her head shaved. Since cutting her hair off or shaving her head is disgraceful and blurs the gender distinction between men and women in this Corinthian culture, instead, she should cover her head during worship. Additionally, there's evidence that would point to the fact that women shaved their heads in some pagan cults. Again, do not reflect something that is radically opposed to God, but reflect what is going to bring honor to God. In first century Corinth, men bring honor to Christ by not wearing a head covering in worship. Wives bring honor to their husbands by wearing a head covering, demonstrating that they are not available. Well, the question is, what about single women? If they don't have a husband to kind of say, hey, I'm not available because I'm married, what what about them? Well, they, as well as married women, honor men in church authority in the same way in this culture, wearing a head covering. It was a symbol of authority over them in the church when they would pray or prophesy. So looking at verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he's the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So verse 7, what does it mean in this verse that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man? Paul, you can't say this kind of stuff. You're going to get canceled, all right? You can't say this. So we, we got to look at this and go, what, what does Paul mean? Because this kind of language doesn't fly real well in 21st century America. Well, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee is helpful in pointing out that verses 8 and 9 help us understand verse 7. Paul most likely means in this passage that the existence of the one brings honor and praise to the other. This is by no means saying that a woman was not created in God's image, because they certainly were. We know that from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And so it's also not saying that she does not reflect God's glory, but Paul is focusing on the direct relationship here between God, Christ, man, woman, as we looked at in verse 3. This is also seen in Paul's comments going back further to chapter 10, verse 31, that, where Paul exhorted the Corinthians in regard to eating and drinking to do everything for the glory of God. Ultimately, everything that Paul talks about in this passage is bringing glory to God. Paul is not trying to be chauvinistic in verses 8 and 9. He is echoing not only the cultural understanding, but appealing to some universal principles that derive from the creation account where the woman was created from the man and created as a helper to the man. Going back to Genesis 2, verses 18 through 23. Now, verse 10 
is a little difficult as well because of the angels. What, what does Paul mean in verse 10 by this? Well, according to Southern Seminary professor and scholar Tom Schreiner, this is most likely a reference to angels involved in worship and their desire to see order in worship and order in creation. And so that's kind of what he's looking at in, in verse 10. So as we jump into verse 11, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. So before you run out the door and say, see, that guy up there hates women, Paul hates women, you know, that kind of, just pump the brakes. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Woman not only came from man, but now we see that man comes from woman. Although Paul emphasizes that Eve came from Adam, like he talked about in verse 8, God has created humans in such a way that man now comes from a woman in childbirth. You don't have to look back at this now, but I'm just going to give you this reference. But 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4, Paul talks about how neither men nor women have authority over their own body in marriage, but they belong to one another. There is equality in value. Again, in the same way that the son is equal in value to the father, but voluntarily submits his role to the father, this is how women and men are to understand their value and their roles. Men and women are both equally valued before God. Although verses 7 through 10 of our passage put emphasis on an authoritative structure in these roles, verses 11 and 12 here balance this with emphasizing equal value of men and women and their interdependence. And so I'm hoping this is kind of bringing a little bit of this uh, to the center so we understand what, what's going on. Verse 13, our last set of verses here. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if, that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. In these verses, verses 13 through 15 specifically, Paul's making the observation that men who wear long hair in a Greco-Roman culture, where men normally wore short hair, if, if men wear long hair in that culture, they start looking like women, blurring gender distinctions. Thus, this brings not only dishonor upon himself, but also on Christ. On the other hand, women who wear long hair actually bring honor upon themselves because it highlights that gender distinction. That's a good thing. At the same time, however, the head covering deflects attention from the woman in public worship back to God, the only true recipient of our worship. Verse 16, where he says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul is saying, you know what? That's the custom in all the churches in the first century. Women wear head coverings. And so as we come to the last verse here in this passage, we're left with the big question that's been on your mind since you saw this was the passage, and you're going, gee, I wonder who they got to preach this one. The question is, 
what does this mean for today? What does this have to do with us today? Do women need to wear head coverings in public worship? Well, I'm glad you asked. First of all, we got to understand that this, this passage should not be made out to be something that it is not. It is not a chauvinistic power move in the early church to put women down. And let me give you a couple of examples. In the ministry of Jesus, during his time on, on the earth, Jesus lifted women up in society higher than they were ever considered. In fact, when he would talk to them in public, he would address women in public. You didn't do that in Jewish culture. They were not addressed in public that way unless they were being called out for something. But Jesus did. And certainly, they weren't, women were not called as disciples of rabbis. But Jesus had women that followed him. Again, very much countercultural. Also, remember, Paul is the one, yes, he said that a woman's body does not belong to her but to her husband. This is back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4. And in that culture, the, the Greco-Roman culture would say, that's right, a woman's body doesn't belong to her, it belongs to me, you know, her husband. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, a man's body does not belong to him, but belongs to his wife. This was completely countercultural. That was definitely kind of a, whoa, Paul, wait a minute. That's not how we do things around here. Again, Paul lifted women up in this society. So it's not a chauvinistic power move in the early church to put women down. It is also not saying that men are more important than women. In fact, we see that God in his wisdom, even though he, he took a rib from Adam and fashioned it into Eve, we know that since then, men are born from women. Men and women are both valuable. They are both equally valuable. This passage is saying that men and women have distinct roles in the church and at home. Even though they are equally valuable before God, we see in this passage and other passages that they play different roles. This is one of these where when I look at this as the husband in a family and think, reflecting on Father's Day like today, and I will tell you that if I could, I would shirk my responsibility as quickly as possible. Uh, I don't look at this distinct roles and go, yeah, the, you know, I'm the man of the house, that kind of thing. It's like me sucking my thumb in a corner going, I guess I'm the man in the house. You know, it's something that God has to call me back to again and again and say, you are responsible for the way that you lead your family. And so we've got to remember that men and women have distinct roles in the church and at home. It is a celebration of the creation of two distinct genders, male and female. And so when we look at these genders that are created distinctively, today we are looking at a mockery of this gender distinction. But this passage is celebrating the creation of man and woman, two distinct genders. It is, this passage is focusing on proper worship of a God who is worthy of our worship. So the question comes back, should women be required to wear head coverings in worship? Remember the principle that I have reminded you 
uh, over and over again. This passage is about proper authority and reverence through gender distinction and modesty. Whatever brings honor to the head or authority during worship. In 21st century American culture, head coverings do not have the same meanings or implications that they had in first century Corinth. You know, there are many churches today who feel convicted to have women wear head coverings in worship. My job is not to criticize their personal convictions on this. You know, when I'm wearing a hat, I still remove it to pray. I believe, however, we need to focus on applying the principle rather than the specific instructions that were related to first century Corinth. And so when we look at proper worship as the context here, these are the principles I think we need to take with us today. Number one, avoid anything that disrupts God's design for authority in worship. The marriage between husband and wife should reflect the authority and submission in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Not only should God's design for spiritual authority be followed in the home, but also in the church. This is why we do not have female pastors or elders at City Church. So avoid anything that disrupts God's design for authority and worship. Number two, avoid anything that causes gender confusion. God created two distinct genders, male and female. This creation of two genders is celebrated throughout the Bible, including Jesus' own discussion of marriage. Both the man and the woman bring glory to God by their distinctiveness. This is why I believe today there is such an attack on gender. If man and woman are created in God's image, as we know from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, if man and woman are created in God's image, blurring the lines of gender is an affront to the glory of God in creation. We must remember to avoid anything that confuses gender. Number three, avoid anything that would distract from God in worship. This would obviously be related to what one wears in public worship. While it's perfectly fine to dress comfortably or to look nice, it goes too far if what a man or woman wears obviously draws attention away from the worship of God and redirects that worship to self. Now, Tiffany and I were, uh, one of the first ministries we were involved in was a singles ministry up in North Carolina during seminary. Uh, when I was attending seminary, and we had a singles minister that we were kind of working under. We, we kind of took on the college age, but the singles ministry w- was much wider age range. And I remember we were going on a, uh, I think a beach retreat type trip or something. And so when we're looking at how to dress for the trip, uh, our singles minister put in these guidelines, he said, and it stuck with us to this day, just because it comes in your size does not mean you need to wear it. Now, Tiffany and I have laughed at that ever since then, but it stuck out to us. But avoid anything that would distract from God in worship. Obviously, this means clothing, but this could go beyond that. The God we worship 
initiated a plan to restore a relationship with himself that we broke through our sin. Because we could never earn his favor by being good enough, because we can never be perfect, God sent his son to die in our place. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death. Our God is certainly worthy of proper worship. All attention and glory and honor should be directed at him, not us. If you've never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins, we're going to have people in the care room out there after the service that would love to talk to you. Now, Galatians 3.28 is where I will close our time. Paul says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. This means that we are all equally part of God's family. There is not a, well, they have a better position in this than the other, or they're included, they're excluded. We're all part of God's family, male or female. Jesus died for us all, yet we are distinct in our gender and our role, each bringing a unique aspect of the image of God to the world. We bring him glory as we worship him and live in our lives in a way that he has uniquely designed us to do. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Thanks for bearing with me through a difficult passage. May we take what God's word has said and apply it as we go forward. Let's pray. I just thank you for who you are, Lord. And Lord, even in passages such as this that are so difficult that we have to dig deeper to figure out what in the world Paul was writing about, Lord, and just understanding the culture of that time period and trying to take that principle and bringing it into today. God, I just pray that we would reflect who you are and that we would redirect all worship to you and you alone because you alone are worthy of our worship or to a world that has confused gender, to a world that uh, mocks your plan, your design. Lord, I pray that we would reflect your love for the world, but also your truth for the world. Lord, help us point people to Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the privilege we have of worshiping you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.